Well, good morning. I am thrilled to get together with you today to kick off a series of new conversations. We're titling This is the Way. Not only as a, a shameless and, and cheesy allusion to a very popular uh, Star Wars TV show that my family and I love a whole bunch. Any Mandalorian fans in the house? Anybody? Okay, okay good, good, good. I'm not totally among strangers here. But also gives us a chance to uh, highlight an interesting phrase, the way, which was one of the earliest names for Christians. Did you know that? The earliest names for Christianity was the way. It becomes this Greek word, hodos, and it means the road or the journey. The term appears several times in the book of Acts, the way, the people of the way. It says that Paul, at one time, he was persecuting members of the way, uh, and they weren't called believers. They weren't called Christians. In fact, the term Christianity doesn't really appear until about 100 AD by a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. The church that we follow in the footsteps they were known as followers of the way, and it's the way of Jesus that we are, are to embody. And by the way, if you were here last week, we had a message called We Are Generations. Serves as kind of a preamble to this series, and so I encourage you, if you weren't here, uh, make sure you check out the podcast from last week. It'll be very helpful to you as we kind of establish who we are as a church and the kind of people we want to be. But in some ways, as I was thinking about this, this series, uh, the, the Mandalorian, when I watched it with my kids over the last couple of years, we watch it together, we love it. This strange little band of space cowboys, uh, you might call them, they do share some interesting parallels with Christians. Now in the show, they're kind of this secretive group, they're mysterious, they're, they're very selective, sometimes they're very violent, which is not the brand of Christianity we want to adopt. Um, but they were super committed to a code, right? Their, their practices. They have this uh, interesting code of they never take their helmet off in front of anybody. That's just part of the way. That's the way. And uh, they, they always act honorably towards the weak and the powerless, kind of like knights. Um, and they never abandon the mission that they're on. And so uh, one of them reluctantly finds himself taking care of baby Yoda, and he can't get rid of baby Yoda. He's got he's to see it through to the end. They're very disciplined. Um, and, and as you go along the series, you learn uh, more and more as you go along about them, you learn that these guys aren't messing around, uh, and that you do not casually follow the Mandalorian way. It was a lifelong commitment to a code. You did things in a certain manner uh, because, as they would say to each other, this is the way. And then they would repeat it, this is the way. And, and what's also interesting about them is that as you get to know the different people in the group, they're not really known for their individualism. They're not really known for like their individual interpretation or you know, how expressive uh, they were feeling on any certain day. What took precedent in the show, what took precedent in this tribe was that the tribe was uh, bigger than you were. It, the, the, the tribe that you were a part of was bigger than yourself. And, and so I got to thinking about this, how it relates to us as Christians. When those early Christians of the way in that first century, when they were looked at strangely by everybody around them, they got this label that was thrown on them as followers of the way. And if you look at them, it's not because they were, you know, they weren't just like a bunch of, you know, isolated, quirky individuals, you know, living their lives. They had come together. They became known for these people who came together in this super countercultural way to, to 
form a kind of new humanity. And we've spent a lot of time at Generations over the years and months, uh, and obviously in the scriptures, looking at who we are individually. Uh, We are children of God. We are adopted into his family. We are loved. Uh, You are considered holy and righteous. We look at uh, a lot individually about who we are in Jesus. But in this series, in this month, over the next few weeks, I want to spend some time looking at who we are corporately as a church. I think so much of the, the mess in some corners of the church around the world today, it seems to stem from a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are supposed to be as the church, who we're supposed to be in the church. And even this word church kind of isn't always helpful because that word church has sort of been reduced to this hour-long preaching and singing event, you know, that we come to once a month or twice, you know, a month or once a week or however long we come, however often we come. And so what we want to do is recapture the biblical image of what we are together, not just a bunch of individuals, uh, who, you know, just all individually cheerleading for Jesus, but as a tribe who are united around God's work in the world. So we're going to start today in the book of Matthew, Matthew uh, chapter 16. You can go there if you have your Bibles. This is a very pivotal point in, in Matthew's gospel. And the introduction to, of the sentence right here, this is normally a part that we would, if you were just at home doing your, your, you know, your, your little personal Bible reading, you'd probably skip right by this. There's like nothing interesting right there. It just turns out there might be something very interesting. It says when Jesus came to the region of where? Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he asked them a question. Like I said, this is probably an example where you and I would probably just skip past this place name and, you know, because we don't even care what that is. We want to get to the good stuff. But in the scriptures, geography matters. It really does. It really does. Um, If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, to the Holy Land, I encourage you to go. It is so amazing. It is like going, it's like moving from a a black and white photograph to a full color movie. Uh, When you get to see these places and you realize that all of these place names that just sort of seem innocuous and like, who cares? You realize that these place names matter. They have theological significance to the stories that we read. Um, And this is one place I got to see with my own eyes that totally uh, reshaped for me what is going on there. So I want to take 10 or 12 minutes, admittedly painful minutes, to talk about Caesarea Philippi, okay? Yes, friends, we're going to do a little history. We're going to talk about history. We're going to look at some sweet maps, baby, okay? So if you were like, oh, man, this morning there better be maps. Yes, there are maps, okay? One other thing, just real quick, there is some stuff coming just in the next few minutes that is horribly offensive and gross, okay? Um, Like rated MA, I might say. Uh, Definitely not anything we would discuss if we were just relaxing around the dinner table together, Uh, but I need to paint a picture of how immoral this place was so you can understand what Jesus is doing there. And so I'm going to use some words and concepts that, you know, 
wouldn't normally be found in a nice, respectable Lutheran service um, like this. So I apologize in advance, but I do think it's necessary if you have small kids. This is a great time to check them into Kids World, which they are going to have an awesome age-appropriate ministry going on back there. It's going to be great. Um, if you have older teens, unfortunately, they probably heard worse in the lunchroom at school. Uh, I'm so glad my mom is in the nursery today. So... Uh, Mom, if you're listening to the podcast, just skip ahead about 12 minutes. Here we go. Um, But you're going to see why I gave this disclaimer in a minute. Uh, So first, let's find out where Caesarea Philippi is because that's actually important. Here's the first of our sweet maps. Here we go. So you see, uh, that's a little from far away, that's a little blow up here. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, the thing you'll notice up above the Sea of Galilee there, which is really just a big lake, but uh, up above, way up at the top, Caesarea Philippi, you can see it at the top of the screen. And uh, let's see, the first thing you'll notice, it's about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is where Jesus does most of his ministry around that region. So it's way up north, and uh, uh, archaeologists have excavated a lot of the ruins of Caesarea Philippi, so we know so much about it now. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is that it is so far up north, it is not on the way to anywhere. It's, it, Jesus would not have been accidentally passing through this region to, on his way somewhere. So he, he makes about a three-day trip out of his way to get there. That's important. He's not there by chance. Here's the next big deal about this. Caesarea Philippi was unique. It was built around this seemingly bottomless spring that came up from, there's a little mountain there. Is that Horeb, Dan? Is that Mount Horeb, I think, is right there? Which is very important in the Bible. But anyway, but so there's this spring. And in the ancient world, what they would do is whenever you had this spring coming up out of the rock and you couldn't really see the bottom of it, of course, the whole region around there would would was dependent upon that spring for the fertility of the land, for the, for the crops and animals. And what you would do is you would build a fertility shrine over the place because it was thought of, thought that such springs led down to a place called Sheol in the Hebrew or Hades in Greek. And that was where it was thought the gods and the goddesses lived down the spring, down in their place. It was the underworld, also the realm of the dead. So, So that's what this place is. Now, it turns out even before Jesus' day, they had been worshiping fertility gods in this place, at this site, long before the Israelites got there. Um, The popular ones, you've probably heard from the Bible, the gods named uh, Baal or Ashtoreth. Um, They might be familiar to you. The tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, they were the ones who, you know, were unlucky enough to kind of settle up at that area. And they were constantly getting in all kinds of trouble for falling into idol worship and worshiping those fertility deities. Um, Because the teaching was, and here's where it gets a little weird, the teaching was that to coax the fertility gods out of the underworld, you had to engage in fertility rituals, which I'll leave to your imagination. And as you engaged in these rituals and rites and ceremonies and practices, which were all hugely immoral, um, the fertility gods and goddesses, it was thought they would come up out of the underworld and these gods would mate together. And then from that, it would bring water and rain to the land. And then after a season, they would go back to the underworld and then you would have the dry season. So you had to repeat this process every year. Um, You kind of got a picture of what's going on. Around uh, 300, uh, 330 B.C.-ish, 
Um, there is a guy by the name of Alexander the Great who just marches through the whole region like locusts and makes the whole world Greek. He makes everything Greek. He conquers the area and he introduces the Greek fertility god Pan. All right, so here's Pan. Here he is, lovely fella. Now, Pan is basically kind of the same myth. He's this fertility god. He's a half man, half goat, and it's the same story. He dwells in the underworld. He has to be coaxed out of the underworld by seducing these goddesses uh, called nymphs. And, um, okay, and, and let me just say, Pan is as scuzzy a character as you can get. Um, I was in my office looking for pictures to try to show you. My Google accountability software is just going nuts. Um, just trust me, looking, for, trying to filter image searches on Pan. So you would, <laughs> you would worship Pan uh, by carrying a six foot high erect body part through the city and then to the temple. And then you would engage in all sorts of immoral acts to invite Pan to come out. And then Pan would come out of the underworld. He would play his flute to seduce the nymphs. This is the Pan flute. Anybody remember the, the 80s infomercials? Late night, Zamfir, just me. I'm the oldest one here, I guess. Okay, yeah. Zamfir and the Pan flute. This is not good. Don't get a Pan flute. No. Um, and I kid you not, the Pan flute was uh, thought to induce this state of arousal and terror called panic, where we get the word, which is how he would seduce the nymphs. And I'm not making any of this up, okay? Um, so as you can see, some of these uh, pictures uh, of Pan here, um, he, he just, he's, kind of, he's absolutely evil. And it, it's interesting that you can see also why over the, the centuries, in a lot of early Christian art, especially when you get into the medieval era, they adopted a lot of Pan's characteristics to represent Satan. And so a lot of our kind of our, you know, basic, you know, sort of cartoony Hollywood pictures of Satan actually comes from Pan because he was just the scuzzy guy. The early Christians were like, yeah, this guy, surely Satan looks like this. We got the goat hooves and the, the horns and all this sort of thing. Now, this is what we think the region of Caesarea Philippi uh, would look like when Jesus was there. Obviously, this is an artist's reconstruction, um, there, but there's enough archaeological remains, we really have a good idea of, of what's going on there now. Now, hang with me for this next part. On the very left, you see that uh, temple, uh, that columned temple there? Uh, that is, there's a cave behind it. You see the cave behind that building. That cave was where the spring originated from, and that cave was called, it was known throughout the region as the Gates of Hades, because they thought it was a bottomless well to the underworld. And it wasn't just the fertility gods worshipped here. Um, that, that first temple on the left there, uh, right there, is a temple to Caesar Augustus, and then sort of in the middle of the picture is a temple to Zeus, the big guy himself, sort of the daddy of the gods. He, he had his own temple there. And then you see that sort of open area between the two temples there. Um, there's a little indent in the rock. They're known as uh, niches, which is a super fun word to say, niches. And if you look closely, this was where Pan, uh, he was worshipped. He had a statue there. And all around were smaller niches in the rocks where the names of some of the, the nymphs would reside there. Some of the, the, god, the nymph goddess like Echo and Nemesis and those, those ladies, uh, they were worshipped there as well. 
Now to the right of that whole area, you see there's sort of like a courtyard and there's an upper and a lower region, the upper and the lower region there. Uh, that's where the real action took place. Now, how do you worship a fertility god who is half man, half goat? You worship him using goats. And this is the awful stuff. Um, and so the sacred goats, they were part of the ceremonial worship, and the goats would be buried in that upper region there. It was actually a tomb. It was called the holy tomb of the goats. They were just for them. And then they would be brought down to the lower courtyard, and you would have priests and priestesses imitating Pan's seduction of the nymphs publicly, using the poor goats in all kinds of horrible ways. And then you basically had 50,000 people all engaging in fertility rites to coax Pan out of the underworld. So this is about as nasty as you can get. Um, if you're thinking, boy, I'm glad I showed up today. Yes, I understand. Uh, that's, a, that's as good as, as bad as it's going to get. Um, also, if, you're thinking, if ever you thought to yourself, boy, this world today is just more sick and twisted than ever. Eh. <laughs> We've come a long way. Not... A long way. We've come away. Okay. Now, this, there we go. This is what it looks like today. You can go there today. And over there, that is the, the cave, the gates of Hades. You can see it back there. There's three shots of the same, same cave. You'll be interested to know in 1879, there was an earthquake and it, the earth shifted and it moved the spring from the cave to like about a hundred feet further out, but the spring is still there. Uh, the cave is dry, but the spring is a little bit further down the path. Um, you can see the, the temple of uh, uh, the Caesar and the ruins right in front of the cave. There's the gates of Hades. Welcome to the underworld, ladies and gentlemen. To the right um, of there is the shrine of Pan, and you can see the niches where all the, the statues would have, would have been. Um, all that remains there, they were worshipped in those niches, the remains of the Temple of Zeus. And you can see where the, the goats were buried in the upper pen. And um, let's see. Also, there's, yeah, you can, uh, I took this video. So, sorry for my camera work there. There's, there's my dad, there's my wife. All right, just chatting it up in front of the gate of hell, like you do. <laughs> no bigs. <laughs> um, now, the last bit of information you need to know, this is very important, you need to know about this, this whole area, the whole temple complex, it's built into a rock, and so it was known, it was called the Rock of the Gods, the Rock of the Gods. So that's where all these gods and goddesses and emperors were worshipped, where the waters came from the underworld, the gates of Hades resided there, this whole complex known in the first century in Jesus' day, the Rock of the Gods. All right. Background over, ladies and gentlemen. We did it. All right, hallelujah. Now, what I want you to remember is that Jesus shows up at this place, Caesarea Philippi, the rock of the gods, not by accident. All right? He has traveled out of his way, at least three days out of his way, to basically the Las Vegas of the ancient world here. And this is like... Uh, Daytona Beach on spring break, okay? This is like, you know, where you, you don't want to take your grandma. Um, he has gone there, and it's just as bad of a place as you can imagine. Now, what else is fascinating about this is that Jesus' disciples were likely all teenagers. Only Peter was an adult, 
Jesus was an adult. Peter was an adult. We're told later in Matthew that uh, just Jesus and Peter paid the, the temple tax. So, you know, we kind of get this picture. If, if you're like me, you kind of get this picture of like all the disciples walking around like 30, 40, 50 year old guys with big beards, you know, and just, but oh, these are like kids. These are like 16, 17, maybe 18 year old kids, most of them. And this would be like Derek, our, our, you know, our youth pastor saying, kids, you know, youth, uh, junior hires, high schoolers, we're all going to go to St. Petersburg for spring break. We're going to, you know, camp in front of like the worst motel where they're partying we can and just, you know, tell people about Jesus. You know, some of us might be like, ah, that feels problematic. You know, I don't know. I, and so Jesus, if you remember back, he asks a question and his question is not random. He's asking because he is there Famous question. He asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, you know, he's the oldest one. He answered, you were the Messiah, the son of the what? Living God. This is the only time in scripture this phrase is used. Son of the living God. We're not, it's not found anywhere else. Why? Why does he use that? Because it makes sense if you realize he is surrounded by a bunch of dead gods. They're standing right there, right? And, and Peter says, you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Look at what he says next. It says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Jesus is playing off uh, his name, which in their language, Peter sounded like the word for rock in the Greek. You're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Let's stop right there for a second. Those of you who maybe aren't super familiar with um, big theology discussions, there's a huge debate for hundreds and hundreds of years over when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. What is he referring to? What is he referring to? Um, if you're from a Catholic tradition, uh, the rock is Peter. The name, his name means Peter. He's, he's making an obvious little pun there. His name means rock. We learn from later passages uh, that in the New Testament that the church was indeed built on the apostles. So in a sense, that's, that's true, absolutely. He, he, the Catholic tradition says that uh, Peter's the rock, he's kind of like the first pope, and he's the foundation of the church. If you come from a Protestant tradition, uh, out of the Reformation, uh, the rock is the confession of Peter. It's that confession when he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God, that Je Jesus is saying, that's the rock, right? That Jesus is Lord. And we read that later. That is true, that Jesus is Lord was the earliest cry of the church. And so that's true also. But Jewish and New Testament scholars often note there's a third option sitting right there that there's the third rock is the one that they're standing right in front of, the rock of the gods. They're in this region of Caesarea Philippi for the first time and never come back. There's this big shrine in front of them called the rock of the gods. And, and what the scholars say is perhaps what Jesus is referring to isn't Peter or his confession, but the place 
the most extreme example of wickedness in the known world. And that is where he's going to build his church. And if you think I'm making that up, notice what Jesus says next. And on this rock, I will build my church and the what? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. They will not prevail. Now, what are the odds? Jesus never uses this phrase anywhere else, except when he's at Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, in front of a place called the gates of Hades, this physical place. So I tend to suspect that, yes, the church was built on the apostles for sure, and it was built on that confession of the apostles that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah. But Jesus was in that region with his disciples, and it's the, it's the first use, by the way, of the, the term church in the Gospels. This is the first time you see the word. The first image of the church is not this little group of people that are persecuted and huddled and holding on to heaven for dear life, right? Now you've got this group of teenagers who are socially weak, they're marginalized, uneducated, you know, on the surface, they have no power. And they're standing in front of this huge intimidating complex known as the Rock of the Gods. And, you know, Augustus was the greatest Caesar who had ever lived. Zeus had been worshipped forever. Uh, Pan had been there long before, you know, Jesus had come along. And Jesus looks at these teenagers and he says, on that rock, I will build my church. And those gates, they won't stand against what I'm about to do. And so it's not this defensive image he paints of a, of a group of sort of, you know, whiny poor Christians huddled, you know, being persecuted by the big bad old world. The first image of the church is a group of these young, unlikely characters who, who seem weak in their own selves, just pledging uncynical allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah. And by the way, they don't even understand quite fully what they mean by that yet. But Jesus takes that small level of faith they have with these unlikely people and says, you will conquer this. You'll conquer this. That's interesting to me. And what's fascinating is also, how does Jesus say he's going to conquer? Well, right after this, Jesus says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? Suffer. So skip 2,000 years ahead to today. And we have this, we have a lot of, you hear a lot of talk about conquering. We have that in Christian circles today. Yeah, we're going to take this back. Yeah, we're going to march. We're going to do this, right? When Jesus talks about conquering, how has he conquered? Through his death and resurrection. And Jesus gathers this group of teenagers with no social status whatsoever at a place that is so wicked. In fact, there were later rabbis who said that Caesarea Philippi was so wicked it could not exist when the Messiah, it could not coexist with the Messiah on the, on the, in the land. It was so notoriously awful. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to build my movement there. And he did. Today, Caesarea Philippi is a pile of rocks. And you're here, a group of living stones being formed into a temple. So, 
It's just so weird that when in some circles you, you, you look out and you see this when the church perceives itself to be this threatened, marginalized, insecure in the world community that has to rely on political power to flourish. And the picture Jesus is presenting is of a kingdom that is advancing. And it says it advances like a little bit of yeast in the dough, right? It, it's it's going to infect everything. Or a small seed that takes over a whole field. The kingdom is slow, but it's inevitable. Slow, but inevitable. It's unstoppable. It's unconquerable, right? Presidents cannot touch this. Pandemics cannot touch this, right? Economics cannot touch this. Congress and Supreme Courts cannot touch this. Right-wing Nazis and, and leftist, you know, Marxists cannot touch this. The most powerful totalitarian nation on the planet right now, China, cannot contain its growing church, right? In fact, the more that the church anywhere throughout history, anywhere is opposed and resisted, the more it flourishes and spreads. And it's one of those things that we, you know, we've somehow convinced, we conceived of ourselves as people who have to fight other flesh and blood people, even though we're told by scriptures that, uh, that you know, people are never our enemy. We don't really believe that because we, 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 we don't believe it because we keep scratching and yelling and clawing for our preservation and our power. And so what we want to do is flip that narrative. And, and we want to say that it's just weird that we're so afraid. Isn't it? Isn't it weird that we're so afraid? We follow the guy who walked up unarmed to Caesarea Philippi with 12 teenage kids and says he has come and conquered death in Hades. And so we have to start seeing afresh our true identity as a church. It starts with that. Who are we? We have to remind ourselves of our identity as the church. We have to remind ourselves every once in a while that Christ is not in danger of being overthrown. Amen. I'm just telling you that. I, and I, I understand where people are coming from when they say things like this. But it always gets me. You know, I got to tell you, the church is not one generation from disappearing from the earth. What we are a part of is the unconquerable, unstoppable, inexorable bride of Christ. And nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. And there's so much fear-mongering online today. And I'm here to tell you this. All of our, like, collective fears, our greatest fears that we might have could come true and the church will flourish. The church will flourish, right? Because the kingdom isn't at the mercy of today's headlines or tomorrow's government leaders or the latest brand of wickedness or the devil, whatever the devil comes up with. The church isn't at the mercy of that. So we get confused sometimes when we look for Jesus in the big and the spectacular and the, and the flashy. When you look in all of Jesus' kingdom talk, is in the slow and the hidden and the weak. Right? And I, just get, I get so tired sometimes and I, I feel myself getting a little cranked up, so I'm going to calm down. I get so tired when we are told that we are this insecure, persecuted people when we are, are a part of something that simply cannot be stopped. Yes. Amen. Amen. 
Now, it, it's, it's also important that we remind ourselves and we understand the fact that it's unstoppable doesn't mean that we run out as angry activists, right? It means that we can run out as people willing to offer self-sacrificial love. We have the luxury of offering the world self-sacrificial love because we know it can't be stopped. See? And that's how it conquers. That is how it conquers. The hardest part for Christians, myself included, I understand. The hardest part for serious, you know, Jesus followers today is to really believe that the way of Jesus actually works in the real world. Because it sounds really good just in scripture and in prayer times. So we get out there and we act like we don't really believe it. Right? Not you, but other people. Right? Yeah. No, you guys are awesome. You guys are awesome. You, I mean that honestly. But we get this idea, the way, the, the, the way of Jesus, we have to actually show that we believe the way of Jesus works in the world, the way of blessing those who persecute us instead of fighting back and cursing them. That's how the kingdom works. That's how it moves and advances. Actually forgiving enemies instead of retaliating against them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, loving people with whom we disagree passionately over politics. Loving them. That's how the kingdom comes. That's what it means when the gates of Hades are overcome. And my friends, I, 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 need, I need so much practice at this, right? Because I am swimming in these waters too. Uh, but I just want to open up as we start this series of conversations over the next few weeks, the possibility, I want to open up the possibility of what it might look like to be a church that is not afraid. What would it look like to not be afraid? What does that free you to do? And that doesn't mean that we're naively optimistic because I get those charges sometimes too. You're naive. Oh no, it's tough. It is tough. And these are tough, these are rough days for us. And it doesn't mean that we just spout off cliches of nonsense to each other. It often means that we get together and we are full of lament over the state of things. And there, there is a place for, for anger that is appropriate, that is righteous. But it means at the end of the day, we don't have to clutch and grab because the kingdom wins. Amen. The kingdom wins. Caesarea Philippi is a pile of rocks today. And here you are 2,000 years later. So we want to take some time this week to reflect on this. And, and we're going to sit together, you know, in, in our home life groups. It, it, I, home life is, is starting at just, just in the nick of time. Because we're going to have a chance to come together and share ideas of how do we deal with all of this. Home life is a place we can come together. We encourage one another. We pray for one another. It's not just a rah-rah, yeah, where everything's great. No, we come together. We pray. We sharpen one another. We lament. And, and we celebrate. Right? Those things. And true community consists of all those things. Right? Real community, authentic community is going to have it all going on. And so maybe you just need a place to, to come. Not because you have all the answers. No, it's a place to come and to say, all right, so what do I do? All right? How do I love my neighbor? How do I be the church while being super anxious about the state of the world 
and my nation and my kids. Right? Because I get that. But I'll tell you, I think one of the, the biggest uh, surprises that I hear from folks who come into the come into community, that sort of a communal situation, and they, they let down their guard for the first time, they find out, number one, that they are not alone. And that is a beautiful thing to find out. You are not alone. We have learned so much about each other over these last couple years of being in home life. We've learned a lot. I mean, number one, we, you know, obvious, we, we are probably the best looking church community in the area. I have that on good authority. Yeah. And it really starts with leadership, uh, of course. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? Even though we are just this incredibly uh, handsome, beautiful people, the amount of pain in this room is staggering. And we, sometimes we don't like to let ourselves, let each other know that. But I know many of your stories. And I know it is staggering. And it doesn't go away by ignoring it. It doesn't go away by just keeping a positive confession. All right? I'm going to tell you, that's just super toxic. It goes away. It gets healed by being confessed, by being shared, and being taken to God together. Right? i got to tell you guys, I have no interest in, in pleasant fictions and just, you know, making stuff up that sounds good or pretending or naive optimism or cliches. I have no interest in, in selling you on the idea. If you love the world, they're going to love you back because Jesus pretty much promised that's not usually going to happen. Yeah, he already assured us that's not the way it works, but it is how the kingdom wins. Love is how the kingdom conquers. Love is how the kingdom conquers. And we want to be the people who recognize that and grow in the recognition that God is good and he is up to stuff and he will use all things for good. He will use what's happening around us. He will use what's happening to you. He will use it for good. And in the end, the way of Jesus will be vindicated. I believe that. If I didn't believe it, I would quit today. The way of Jesus will be vindicated, right? And for those of us in the meantime who are struggling to, to humble ourselves and to practice generosity and kindness and compassion. This is how the kingdom comes. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord God. Of all the places, of all the images, Lord God, that you chose to convey, to give birth to this movement that we are a part of 2,000 years later, you chose this one. And Lord God, it has such relevance for us today and such power, Lord. And Father, I know you know my heart. I cannot pretend in front of you. You know, I sit so often, I sit afraid for the future and afraid for what's happening. And in my fear, it's easy to label and demonize and hate. Lord God, we just want to call forth all that, that poison from our hearts. We want to be the people who live and actually believe, Lord God, that, that your way of working in the world works. That's how your kingdom comes. So we desperately want to be the people who are shaped by your spirit, Lord God, to look and act and walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus, Lord God. We don't just want to believe this in our heads. We want to inhabit 
the reality of Christ in the world. And we need you to do that. So refresh our imaginations this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray. Hear the cries of our heart as we leave here, as we try to represent you well in the world. Draw near to his Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you'll stand to your feet, our prayer partners are coming forward at this time. They would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life, whatever's going on, whatever need you have, whatever miracle you need from the Lord, whatever persecution maybe you're, you're, you've been up against, you're just feeling like the whole world is against you. We need each other. We're the body of Christ. We pray for each other. We encourage one another. And it's not the same when we pray. Amen. So I encourage you to come forward. Let these guys pray with you. Amen. Friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all until we meet together again. Amen. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.